If you do have your Bibles, open up to Titus chapter 1. We are going over one verse today, which is still uh, technically part of Paul's one sentence in his introduction. Very long-winded, but very wonderfully deep uh, introduction that he gives. And this is the, the ending of that introduction where he's finally addressing Titus. So this is God's word. Titus 1, 4. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is God's word. We often gloss over introductions. Certainly in the Bible, when we have an introduction that we're familiar with, we can gloss over and we can miss out on some wonderfully rich themes and some wonderful nourishment for our souls if we just slow down and unpack some of the words and themes in these introductions. They are divinely inspired. They're not just there as a formality and then the Holy Spirit is kind of saying, now here's the real meat of it, but every word is divinely inspired. So we are going to look at this today in verse 4 of Titus 1. Paul has introduced himself, as I said, in this classic, densely theological greeting that he gives to Titus. And finally, he then addresses Titus and says, now to Titus, my true child. We remember that Titus is one of Paul's early converts, uh, someone he trusts immensely with the work of the gospel because uh, the area of Crete, as we went over last week, is not really uh, the gig that someone would have wanted to try and bring order to. It's a very unruly area full of disobedient people. We read out that statement that Paul refers to in verse 12, Cretans are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And this is the area that Paul has then sent Titus, he has commissioned him to shepherd. Paul considers Titus, his true child, in a common faith. He has a father-like relationship. So whether this was Paul actually active in the conversion of Titus or coming alongside him early on and discipling him, Paul clearly had this father-child relationship with Titus. And not simply a child, but Paul actually says that Titus is his true child. To add even more intimacy to the relationship so the word for true here is legitimate or genuine. It's a word that uh, literally is used within the context of referring to a child when they're born within wedlock. So when they're born within an actual marriage, then they are, this word would be used to say, ah, oh, they're a true child. Because if they're born in this context within marriage, then they are a legitimate member of the family. If not, they would not be a legitimate member of any family. So Paul is saying, Titus is my True child, a legitimate member of the family. That is the family of faith. Titus is my child. There is an intimacy 
in this relationship. And it's not simply because they are like-minded. It's not simply because they both traveled a lot and so they enjoyed traveling together, seeing the sights of the world. It's not even that they were significant leaders in the church. The context of the intimacy or the boundaries, you might say, of the intimacy in the relationship between Paul and Titus is because it is according to a common faith. My true child in a common faith or my true child according to a common faith. This is Paul saying, you are my true child because we are within this common faith. So this is something that we can all share. This is not unique to Paul and Titus because he says it's according to a common faith. If Paul had been as much of a father figure to Titus and spent as much, if not more time with him early on, yet Titus was not following Jesus, Paul would not have referred to him as my true child in a common faith. The grounds of this relationship is this common faith. And this is what I want us to dive into today, this common faith. What is this common faith? And can we have relationships like this? Intimate relationships within a body of people because of our common faith. Last week, we spoke about the two different types of faith. There is this this individual level of faith. We all must individually trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We will all stand before God and as individuals, we have to give an account. And all that will matter on that day is whether we have trusted in Jesus Christ. Truly, there is this individual level of faith, but then there is this collective level. There is this overarching faith that is referred to, which is the faith which encompasses all of the wonderful teachings of the church, the faith which has been handed down from generation to generation over thousands of years, which we receive, which is the reason why we are here now, because this faith by the providence of God has been preserved and we hold it dear to us. And this is the collective faith. This is the overarching faith. Faith, And this is what Paul says here. Titus, you are my true child because we are within this common faith. We share this common faith. We trust, which is faith, in the same person, the same Savior who now indwells us by his spirit and brings us great unity. This is the common faith. But the common faith goes so much deeper than simply the fact that we believe in the same God. It goes so much deeper than common likes and dislikes, personality preferences, ethnic or cultural ties. It goes way deeper than any of the natural means of connection that we have. The idea of common here, the word for common, is the same word that then a very important word that we use as Christians, it's in our Christianese language, fellowship. We use fellowship a lot and common here is the root word for the word for fellowship. So fellowship, which we engage in when we gather together, which we share in. We talk about Christian fellowship when we gather to pray together, when we talk with each other. We have this bond of fellowship and common here is the word for fellowship. And as I said, it is tremendously deeper. The fellowship that we have is way deeper than just having coffee together after a service. 
It's way deeper than that. It is a spiritual bond that transcends every natural means of connection that we would have. Like same hobbies, likes and dislikes, same demographic. It transcends all of that. This is a cosmic heavenly fellowship that transcends every human barrier. So to look at this fellowship, if you uh, do have your Bible, turn to 1 John. And in 1 John, make sure you keep your finger on Titus. In 1 John, uh, he talks about this fellowship. And John, the apostle says in 1 John 1 verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, which he's talking about the risen Christ. He's saying we have seen and heard him. We've even felt him. We have touched him because God became man and we witnessed that. And he is the one we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So John invites the hearers and we as well, into this fellowship that is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus. That's the, the fellowship. It's an eternal, heavenly fellowship. And John is saying, this is what we're inviting you into. Come into this fellowship that has eternally existed with the Father and with the Son, wrapped up by the Spirit. And John is writing this both because he was divinely inspired to write it it was going to happen anyway but in the natural means he's writing this because he was there when jesus was giving his high priestly prayer in john 17 and jesus was talking about these wonderful realities as he's praying before his disciples and john records it in his gospel account in chapter 17 where jesus says I ask, so Jesus is asking to the Father for all of the believers who will believe in Jesus. He says, I ask for all those who will believe in me through their word. There is the disciples. We who believe in the word that has been handed down through the first disciples to everyone else since. We believe in that. And Jesus is saying, I want them to, those who believe in that, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. This is Jesus' prayer for us. This is the fellowship. He's saying, Father, you and I have this intimate bond that is indescribable, this eternal bond that existed before anything else was. The Father, God the Father, was loving God the Son. That's what was happening before the creation of anything. This wonderful bond, and Jesus is saying, I want them to be in this I want them to be in this. I want them to be one. And then I want them to be in this intimate relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So Jesus' prayer for our fellowship is that we would dwell in him, in this place where there is utter peace. Imagine the peace within the Trinity. Imagine the peace within God. He wants us to dwell in this place, in this place where there is unfailing covenant love. Imagine love that never fails. That's what we are being invited into. In this place where we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
That's the fellowship. And that's why Jesus finishes his high priestly prayer by saying, I want them to see my glory, the glory which you, Father, have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And we are invited into that fellowship. This is the fellowship that Paul is referring to when he talks about Titus being a true child in a common faith. This common faith means that we are partakers in this, in all of these wonderful realities that Jesus prays for, that John records, that Paul speaks about. This is what we are invited into. This is the common faith. So for the follower of Jesus, this word common, ironically, if we think about common as just kind of bland, there's nothing bland about it at all. It is amazing. And this is the common faith. It takes on a much deeper meaning. It's deeper than simply being part of the same community. It's deeper than liking the same things, looking the same way. It's a spiritual bond that transcends every cultural, ethnic, personality, class barrier that we could ever put up. It's a bond that is even stronger than our family, our biological family ties here, which is why Jesus says, I've come to set mother against daughter and father against son, because this fellowship that I'm calling people into is stronger than all of that. It's going to separate that, but they're going to come into something that is so much stronger. And this is the kind of unity and bond that we ought to have as those following Jesus. Is that not scary? To think that that is what we are supposed to have. That's what Jesus prays for. This common faith. This is the relationship that Paul had with Titus. So how do we experience this? How do we experience this kind of common faith? Now, I believe there are some hurdles that we need to jump. We need to do some athletics to uh, rightly experience this common faith because of the state of the 21st century Western church, which to be clear, we are a part of. This is not us talking about it like saying everyone else has the problem and we're going to be okay. No, we are part of the problem and we need to own it and we need to, by the grace of God, with all the strength that he gives us, persevere and fight to experience these wonderful truths. The first of two little hurdles that we have is firstly the incredibly low bar that we set for discipleship now. Discipleship through the church has evolved from something that required a tremendous level of commitment and something that had implications for all of your life. In fact, for uh, several hundred years in the first millennium in around the 6th to 8th century BC, there was a three-year catechism process to just become a member of a church. That's like going to Bible college to just become a member of this church. I'm not advocating for that but it gives you a picture of the level of commitment that was required and people willingly did it they loved it now discipleship and commitment to a body has been whittled down to something that really just serves the religious portion of your life you kind of have this 
portion of your life that you will give to a community and it requires four to six hours a week. It's like 5% of your life. And that's pretty standard. And what has happened is that has become the bar. It's like, well, if you can offer like a few hours on a Sunday and maybe fortnightly small groups, you're doing okay. And the bar just gets lower and lower. The second issue is consumeristic tendencies. I think it's been a few months since I've spoken about this, which is a, a, a record. So I need to talk about the dangers of consumerism a bit more. Consumeristic tendencies. We know this. We are conditioned to please ourselves. We want to please ourselves. And we have all of the resources at our hands to get whatever we need whenever we want. And that conditions us. So we therefore look for the church to suit our needs. We look for the church, the, the church to meet our needs. We look for things that are going to please a consumer appetite, like the right music, the right type of people, the right small groups, the right programs. And it becomes a therapeutic experience being part of the church, this sort of form of therapy that massages our spiritual self to feel comfortable. And this consumeristic idea of meeting our needs is non-existent through Scripture. You won't find it anywhere. This idea of connecting to a body because of personal needs that we have apart from the personal need of connecting with a body in this common faith. You won't find any of the consumeristic ideas of finding a church with the right programs, the right type of music. We are instead told to deny ourselves. We're told to consider others as more important. Even in the second chapter of Titus, we're told that the grace of God teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Worldly passions is what consumerism is built off of. Having worldly passions and then meeting those needs and we're told here to renounce those to deny ourselves for a greater good so the low bar of commitment and the consumeristic tendencies provide all of the ingredients for discipleship to look more like an individual pilgrimage that we are on toward our own happiness which is completely on our own terms rather than the needs of others, the terms of Scripture, and the glory of God. And this is an absolute tragedy when this happens, because not only is it not what Christ desires for His church, but it robs us of the many joys of this common faith. It robs us of the ability to experience these common joys in the common faith. See, we experience the depth of the joys of this common faith as we commit unconditionally to a body of believers in the household of faith. Let me be clear, unconditional is not on doctrine. That's conditional. They must proclaim the gospel. They must be within the realms of orthodoxy. That's conditional. The unconditional element that I'm talking about is personal preference, secondary issues, tertiary issues. When we commit unconditionally to, to a body of believers, a community of messy people, when we commit unconditionally 
to a community of messy people from all types of backgrounds, from all demographics, we are thrust into the wonderful realities of this common faith. We're actually just thrown into all of the wonderful realities that come because of this common faith. Let me explain how that happens. Because if you have bought into this consumeristic discipleship and the church is really here to meet your needs and the church is conditional upon your personal needs of right amount of people, right programs, right location, right personalities, then you will never experience the depths of this common faith. You won't. Because any sense of unity that you feel with people will have come through the natural means, like who you gel with. This just happens. I've been part of many sports teams at school, community groups. You just naturally gel with different people and you kind of experience a bit of joy, but it's really because you stay away from the people you don't like. You just kind of gel with the people that you're drawn to. So you have this natural means of fellowship rather than a supernatural bond that can only come by the Holy Spirit. So you only ever ever have a sense of fellowship when you have people you click with personality-wise. You only ever feel joy when the church you're a part of aligns with your vision of what a church should look like, which is totally based on your personal preference. But when you commit unconditionally to a community of believers, you are then thrust into this impartiality within a body that allows for the supernatural experience of the common faith. You actually open the door for the supernatural experience of the common faith. And anything less than that, anything less than jumping completely into a body because you are sold out on, for Jesus Christ and totally committed to his body, anything less than that will be at best a superficial experience of our common faith or at worst, a completely false idea of this common faith. Now, there are three very quick practical applications that I believe are helpful for our community that we can do to experience this common faith. The first is to meet regularly with people within the church, meet regularly with people, where you are intentional about stirring each other on. So I'm not talking about just meeting up with people. You'll do that anyway. We're human. We, even the biggest introvert will be drawn to catching up with someone for a coffee every now and then. I'm talking about relationships where we actually make a regular habit of catching up to read the word together, to have a spiritual checkup, so to speak, like not in a weird way where you're kind of putting on your mentor hat at the moment and you can just tell that they're changing. It's like, oh, here's my checkup again. And in a natural way of just checking in with one another because you love that person. Your primary concern is that they would be walking in the, this common faith to have relationships like this. Actually, as we study chapter two of Titus, we kind of see these relationships happening in the church where Paul is saying older women to instruct younger women, older men instruct younger men. So meet regularly with people where you are intentional about stirring each other on. The second application is linked to that to show no partiality in that. 
So not just to meet with people that you like to meet with, but meet with all kinds of people. I realize that we're a small community, so um, it's kind of difficult to have a whole bunch of different personalities. But even then, in our small community, we still have different personalities. So to make a practice of actually choosing to catch up with people who you wouldn't usually catch up with, like not your schoolyard chums. I mean the people who in school, the ones you would have avoided because of the different personality. Make a practice of catching up with all people. When you choose to connect with people who wouldn't be those you usually gel with, you actually make room for a bond to form that is totally by the Holy Spirit in this common faith. The, the third application is a very simple one, yet a commonly forgotten one, and that's to pray with people. Pray with them. Pray in these relationships. There is a spiritual activity. Let's call it like a spiritual adhesive that happens when you pray with people. If I can share a personal testimony of this, some of you would know uh, we've obviously come from City Reach. Marion and Jasmine and I were part of the initial church plant that happened almost four or five years ago. And I met Lawson, the lead pastor, uh, about a week before he asked me to be part of the church plant. And I didn't know him at all. And uh, he is someone that's very a very different personality to me and someone that I would not have been naturally drawn to. But we started catching up uh, week after week to just read the word and pray together and talk about this church plant. And I developed this wonderful love for him that can only come about by the work of the Spirit. Not because he was, and it's, it's probably more because of my neurotic personality, not because of him, but not because of anything that made him, uh, would make him repulsive to anyone else. It's not that at all. It's just different personalities. But what happened was this wonderful bond. And all of a sudden I had this love for this guy I'd only just met like a few weeks before. And it came down to the fact that we were just reading the word, praying, and we wanted to see the name of Christ glorified. And that was enough. That was more than enough for this bond to form. So it's amazing what happens when you commit to regularly catching up with people, to reading the word together and to praying. There is a wonderful, wonderful activity that happens. It's these practices that reinforce the commitment required within the body to experience this common faith. So this is a bit of an invitation to yet again, jump in, lay aside every personality preference and just jump into this wonderful experience of the common faith where you can hang out with weird people like Eleora that likes holding Tupperware under her chin like that and have a great love for her. This is the common faith. This is the background to really these two words that Paul refers to here. This common faith, this intimate fellowship that we are invited into, that has existed for all eternity, and that we now are invited into to share in this little body. I want to finish by just briefly looking at another very common introduction of grace and peace. This is 
an introduction that Paul uses in every single one of his letters. Even Peter uses it. Grace and peace to you in different ways. Grace and peace from God the Father, Christ the Son. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. So grace and peace. In the last five minutes, I want to just unpack very quickly the deep theological meaning of this introduction. It's not something that we should gloss over in any way. There are two levels to this. The first level that we should understand is the way that this demonstrates the union of Jew and Gentile. So this is not just like Paul saying to Titus, g'day. It's something much deeper, something much more profound in this greeting. Grace and peace is firstly the combination of two greetings. It's the combination of the common Greek greeting. So grace, just for a a little uh, Greek grammar that is rarely necessary, but for this it might help us understand the, the actual meaning of the word. Charis is the word for grace. And it's connected with a word that they use for, to say greetings, which is charin. So charis and charin. And basically, this was the common greeting. So if you greeted someone in a Greco-Roman culture, you would say charin. And it's, it's actually a cool way of saying rejoice. It's like saying you should be rejoicing over my presence. Charin. Hello, greetings. This is the Greek greeting. Now, you may have heard of the Hebrew word shalom. That's the word for peace. This was the other, he- this was the other main greeting where you would greet someone and you would say shalom. And it's, it means peace. It means peace be with you. Be well. So grace and peace is like taking the Greek, which is representative of the Gentiles. That's everyone who wasn't a Jew. This greeting with the common Hebrew greeting of shalom and bringing them together and saying, Chayrin, Shalom, grace and peace. Here they are together. It brings the union of Jew and Gentile. But then there is this deeper meaning. The, the much deeper meaning is that it is a constant reminder of the gift and result of our salvation. Grace is the unmerited gift of God to an undeserving people. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We don't deserve any of it. It is the unmerited gift of God by His mercy. And if you add anything to the table, even if you think that your faith is something that you have mustered up, all of a sudden you are bringing something to the table, you are undoing the grace of God, because there is no sense of entitlement. We don't deserve any of it. We are dead in our sins. God's grace is that He kicks through that, sweeps us out of the mud and mire, and sets our feet upon the rock, and that is by His grace. So grace is undeserved, and this grace from God brings us peace with God. Before the grace of God appeared, Before God's grace, we were enemies with God. That's how we're described. We were enemies in our mind. There is hostility. We are enemies with Him. And this is what you get when sinful people rebel against a holy God. 
This is what you get. When sinful people rebel against a holy God, you get friction on a cosmic level. You get enmity and hostility. But God, being rich in mercy, because He is full of grace, He washes over that. He cleanses us. He gifts us the forgiveness of our sins. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And in the forgiveness of sins, He removes the barrier of hostility. He removes, I mean, the reason we did not have peace is because sin separates us from God. So this is the work of justification where God gives us forgiveness because he places our sin and the punishment for our sin onto Jesus Christ. And we then receive his righteousness, which is why we can then come before God the Father and have absolute peace. And Paul explains this in Romans 5.1. He says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have peace with him. There is peace with God. There is no more hostility. We have peace with this God who is perfectly holy, who hates sin. We think so highly of ourselves that we forget how much God hates sin, but He does. He hates sin. It offends Him. And so we had all of this stuff within us that offended Him, and He removes it. And now all that is left is His good pleasure toward us. Because we approach him in his son, Jesus Christ. So we get that declaration. My son in whom I'm well pleased. We receive that because we are in Christ. There is peace. There is peace with us. Just imagine. Imagine the peace that has existed for all eternity. When there was no sin present. Imagine God who has no wicked thought. Imagine what that is like to have just utter peace and then realize that this fellowship, this common faith that we have been talking about is us being invited into, even swept up into this peace within the Godhead. There is no more friction, no more enmity, but utter, utter peace. The kind of peace that Horatio Spafford, who we will sing his song. Many of you would have heard this story where he uh, basically lost his whole business and then he sent his uh, wife and children across the sea and they, the, the um, boat uh, went down and his daughters drowned and he lost them in the ocean. And then as he was sailing across the very seas that swallowed up his daughters, he writes... When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the peace that we can have. Regardless of whatever happens in this life, it is well because we have been swept up into this peace that will never be taken away. Jesus says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. It's yours and no one can take it away. It's sealed. By my blood. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. So let's, I'm going to pray and I'll invite Andrew to come up and we will finish by singing that song, It Is Well With My Soul. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful truth 
that we as wicked sinners can be freely forgiven and justified by your grace, by your gift. And therefore we can have peace with you. We can have peace with God. This God who created everything, who crafted these wonderful, wonderful things we see in this world that displays a tiny pinch of your glory. There is an immeasurable amount of your glory we wait to behold. And we have peace with you. We rejoice in that. And we pray that you would help us to jump in deeper and deeper into this common faith that brings us the many, many joys of fellowship in you. Help us to adore you and behold your glory more and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.